What's up, everyone, and welcome to Indivisible, a show where we explore how crypto is securing freedom by design. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Indivisible, where we are going to be taking a deep dive into Freeport a platform that is bringing fractional ownership of legacy fine art onto the blockchain and is also the sponsor of this episode. Freeport is launching with four incredible pieces from Andy Warhol on May 10th. These are works that are sourced from the private collection of Warhol superstar Jane Holzer, who we will also be hearing from in this episode. So be sure to visit freeport.app and get on the waitlist to become a Warhol owner and a part of this future legacy. First, a quick legal disclaimer, and then on to the show. An affiliate of Freeport is anticipating making an offering in securities under Tier 2 of Regulation A. No money or other consideration is being solicited, and if sent in response, will not be accepted. No offer to buy securities can be accepted and no part of the purchase price can be received until an offering statement filed with the SEC has been qualified by the SEC. Any such offer may be withdrawn or revoked without obligation or commitment of any kind at any time before notice of acceptance given after the date of qualification by the SEC or as stated in the offering materials relating to an investment opportunity as applicable. An indication of interest involves no obligation or commitment of any kind. So Freeports historically have been these areas that uh, really are meant to facilitate trade by limiting tax liabilities on the assets that exist inside of them. So it's kind of like a duty-free zone in the airport, uh, if people could use an analogy, but they've had a little bit more of a nefarious history. So a lot of extremely wealthy people will store their art in these Freeports uh, and trade it back and forth with other extremely wealthy people. And the art never sees the light of day, but it's a really, really good way to uh, transfer illicit funds back and forth. I'm not saying it's always that, to be clear. And there are certainly uses to these free ports, but uh, they've gotten a little bit of a, a negative name over time for, for some of those activities that go on there. Uh, our goal is to subvert that idea uh, and to take the good elements of free ports, uh, but leave all of the bad ones behind. So uh, in our view, the artwork uh, and really just all the assets that exist in there, but the artwork especially Uh, should be pulled out and distributed to the public in a way that everyone can kind of own a piece of it rather than just having very, very limited numbers of people keep the artwork in the dark and the financial gains that oftentimes can come along with trading that artwork uh, hidden away. That was Colin Johnson, the CEO and co-founder of Freeport, a platform that is using crypto to enable users to invest and hold fractional shares of fine art starting with works from blue-chip contemporary artists that we know and love. That means Warhol, that means Basquiat, Picasso, Dali, Keith Haring, and the like. Broadly speaking, Freeport is part of a core innovation to bring real-world value to the DeFi ecosystem by representing the ownership of tangible assets like watches, houses, cars, stocks, and of course art on-chain. The platform is also democratizing fine art ownership, which means taking it beyond the many and forgotten corridors of the very rich and back to becoming an experience of ownership that is accessible for more people. The ownership piece is key. And as you listen throughout the episode, pay attention to how this concept is discussed. In our current paradigm, 
we associate the psychological value of collecting art with individual ownership. Freeport is building for a market where individuals might benefit from a collective sense of ownership, supported by crypto as both a financial and a social technology. Colin shares his thoughts about why this shift towards expanding the experience of ownership is long overdue. So there's nothing wrong with having an aspirational desire to own very expensive art solely on your own, right? Like we're not saying that should never exist again, but we're saying we have the technology and the freedom and the capability to allow that sense of ownership to come to far more people. And frankly, it's kind of bullshit that it hasn't historically been allowed to touch more people. Like if you go to the museum right now, if most people go to the museum right now or an art gallery right now, they look at the art and it appears to be uh, something that's literally on you know, the other side of a plane, right? Like, like a plane of existence. So you don't think, hey, I could potentially own that in the future. You think, well, I, I'm not worthy of this. I, I literally can't be part of whatever world that art exists in. Like that's how most people kind of feel when they go to a museum or a gallery. And that's, that's nonsense, right? Like there's no reason for that to be the case anymore. Um, and we can allow people to start feeling like, well, they can enter that plane of ownership of things that historically have been just completely inaccessible because, because the expense is too high. Um, so that's, that's the world that we're trying to change. Uh, and, and that's kind of a fundamental right that we think people should have is, is the ability to access these things that historically only very few have been able to. Colin raises a theme of art as a universal human medium that compels a desire to own and engage. And if people are engaging via Ethereum, it also becomes a gateway to the felt sense of understanding what it means to hold digitally native property rights. So far, we have seen crypto markets form around JPEG tokens called NFTs. Some NFTs are just speculative tokens with a picture attached, but there is a much broader NFT market that represents true digitally native art. The native piece means that the art lives on and was created for the blockchain. On the other hand, Freeport is bringing legacy art that currently hangs on the walls of museums, galleries, and homes to the blockchain by using a different type of Ethereum token to represent a piece of ownership in these works. So if you think about fine art and recognizable names in fine art, uh, who better than Andy Warhol, right? I, I, especially here in the U.S., and these are going to be U.S. registered securities, um, but especially here in the U.S., there's no brand name that people recognize more, even if you're not a fine art connoisseur. And in our eyes, um, there are too few people who are currently fine art connoisseurs, and we would like to introduce the concept to more folks. Um, so Andy is very, very helpful in sort of bringing that, that brand name recognition to a space that not many people may have delved into before. You know, having a Netflix special doesn't hurt on that front. But there are many other reasons too. So Andy was very counterculture while also being wildly consumerist, right? He is sort of this enigma of a character that stands out for not caring about what has come before him um, and really just caring about, you know, his legacy uh, and his future. You know, he has that quote, it's not about living, uh, it's not about trying to live forever. Uh, it's about trying to create something that will. Um, and in our eyes, that's exactly what's happening here on blockchain. And that's, that's kind of what we want to do with Freeport. Um, 
and we just respect the hell out of him. We think it, it was incredibly powerful to live the life that he lived. He's probably the most iconic figure, especially in American art history um, that exists out there. So if we're going to introduce a new concept to people, let's give them at least something familiar to, to anchor their perception with. So we have uh, some early investors and advisors who have been Warhol dealers in New York City for quite some time. One of them uh, is more than just a Warhol dealer. Uh, her name is Jane Holzer, and she was a Warhol superstar, uh, Warhol muse when she was younger, went by the name uh, Baby Jane Holzer. So she is an investor, she is an advisor, and she is also uh, helping us procure the artwork. Uh, and it's coming directly from her collection, actually, in many cases, which means that we have some of the strongest possible provenance. Uh, uh, in one case, with a Mick Jagger, as an example, uh, the artwork was given by Andy Warhol to one of his friends, and he signed it on the back, Merry Christmas, to that specific friend. And that friend gave it to Jane Holzer directly. Um, so we have that kind of direct connection. She's, she's an incredible human. Um, she's been collecting art for quite some time amongst you know, a dozen other things that she does fantastically well. We wouldn't want to start this company without Jane. Warhol's superstar was someone that basically Andy anointed um, when he started first hanging out with you. Other people anointed the name, so to speak. But it would be a girl that he was sort of spotlight and photograph or be in the movies. And sometimes it was multi. It wasn't just me. And then after me, there were others. That was none other than Warhol superstar Jane Holzer, who I wanted to speak with to get an inside look at who Andy was and some clues as to why his astronomical legacy continues to endure. He early checked off so many boxes of where art and culture is going today, he was ahead of his time. It's a, you know, superstar. It's it's sort of like, it, it's he predicted everything that's happening right now. I mean, Andy was the first video artist. He was the first Instagrammer. He was so many firsts that one has, it, that it's shocking besides being a great artist. Jane also speaks about Andy's generous spirit, a quality that she saw him display well before wealth and fame. This is something that she has observed as a common trait of the artist that she has loved the most over her journey as a collector. He would feed people that came to town. And Andy was not that rich at that point. I mean, far from what possibly artists are making today very early in their careers. Big, big difference. But it, nevertheless, he's always cared about other artists. What might Andy have thought about this new era of technology and art? And specifically here with Freeport, this new method of collecting that will make ownership of his art more available to more people. He would have loved it. With Andy's blessing, let's get back to the provenance of the first Warhols that Freeport is bringing to the world. We've got four different pieces that we're starting with by Andy Warhol. One is the Mick Jagger, one is the James Dean, one is the double Mickey, and one is uh, Marilyn. Uh, and the Marilyn is like a hot pink Marilyn. It is it's absolutely incredible. The double Mickey has diamond dust on it. It's one of only 25 that exists. James Dean is like one of the most striking pieces I've seen. And these are all massive, by the way, when you see them in real life. 
Um, and then finally, we've got the Mick Jagger that's signed by both Andy Warhol as well as Mick Jagger with that special Merry Christmas note I just mentioned on the back. Uh, and those are all going to be available uh, May 10th to the public. At this point, you might be wondering how Freeport has plans to expand its collection on offer beyond the initial four Warhols. For starters, it turns out that other collectors are already interested and getting in touch. Let's hear from Colin about how he is thinking strategically about bringing the wider contemporary blue chip fine art market on chain. So we want to bring epic pieces onto the platform that will be excellent investments for our users. Uh, So we do have access to artwork that's coming from Jane uh, as well as Michael. We've also had folks reach out to us. So as you can imagine, you know, our our lives don't stop after this launch. So we're already planning for what the the next collections are. But we've had folks just today, as a matter of fact, uh, I had someone reach out with another double Mickey, uh, as well as a gun piece by Andy Warhol saying, hey, I'd like to put these on your platform. And we're not even live right now, right? And we we have people reaching out because they're really intrigued by the idea of um, tokenizing their assets, right? We've had, we've spoken with uh, Playboy about potentially fractionalizing their collection, not nudes to be clear, but they have their own, you know, uh, other pieces of fine art. We had an owner of a Banksy reach out to us, uh, the Valentine's Day Banksy, actually. Their lawyer reached out to us about two weeks ago to see if we could fractionalize that Banksy. So even pre-launch, we have a lot of people who are very interested in uh, legally tokenized assets coming from a platform that is based right here in the US. But uh, I would say that to start, we'll probably be looking at artists like Warhol, like Basquiat, like like Keith Haring, um, others that uh, are coming from a more contemporary style Um, Because frankly, if you look at how contemporary art has performed over the past 25 years, it's it's performed very, very well. Uh, And at the end of the day, while Freeport is going to be a fun collector's platform and we're going to have other engagement elements, we do want to ensure that uh, we're choosing sound investments as well. So what are the market factors that are driving such a keen supply side interest from the legacy art collecting world so early on? Perhaps as with many things, it comes down to a race for money culture and staying in the game? So uh, there are a few key elements here. One is that uh, as a dealer of artwork, you don't always have buyers, right? So if there's a platform that allows for uh, an increased distribution because more people can purchase the artwork, because guess what? They don't have to be a multimillionaire to buy it. And you can have a few, let's say hundred people come together and purchase the asset. Then that is a great funnel for you as an art dealer to be able to distribute your goods to. Um, so, so that is a significant part of it. Um, there's also this thought that web three is coming. Web three has already come right to some, to some degree. I think you and I are both aware of this and many other folks are aware that that's the case. But when you look at web two companies, they don't all have a web three solution. And we look at people in the art world, uh, that are sort of, let's just say the equivalent of web two in the art world, or maybe even more like web one, I suppose in the art world, um, they want to find a way to be relevant and to engage with what is sort of the cool new trend. Art has always been about culture. And if culture is being defined on the fringe right now in the blockchain space, then you as someone who has legacy assets or legacy pieces of artwork, you want to be involved, right? So it's not just about the fractionalization, but it's also about being part of this net new technology that you see kind of consuming the thoughts and and minds of 
you know, young people and, and now even more old people and, and middle-aged people as well. Another component here is the historical performance of fine art as an investment class. Sources indicate that over the past 25 years, contemporary fine art has consistently outperformed the S&P 500 and is an asset class that appreciates even more in periods of high inflation. However, historically speaking, only the wealthy have been able to benefit from this appreciation and the value of using fine art to diversify their financial portfolio. So uh, we can talk historically about how art has done. Uh, we, we can't make any promises about the future. Uh, excuse me, the, the SEC would, would not be a fan of that. But what we can say is over the past 25 years, fine art and specifically contemporary art uh, has outperformed the S&P 500. And obviously everyone looks to the S&P 500 as sort of the benchmark, right? Just throw your money into an ETF and, and kind of be done with it. Uh, but when you're looking at different ways to diversify, historically, the ultra wealthy have been able to diversify using fine art because they can afford a $500,000, million dollar, $2 million purchase price um, and just sort of hold that value within the, the physical asset itself. Normal people haven't been able to gain exposure to this asset class that, again, has, has historically outperformed the S&P 500. Now that you can do it um, in a fractional format, right, you can sort of purchase a few shares uh, and gain a similar type of upside, then it completely changes um, changes the ballgame. As far as what people can do on Freeport, we're going to be fractionalizing the assets 10,000 ways. Right. Uh, there will be a minimum purchase price uh, or a minimum purchase of 10 shares for each of the assets. Um, but on the secondary market, once that opens up, you'll actually be able to buy and sell individual shares. Uh, so there's no limit. There's a You can only own 10% of one of the assets. So I will say we do have an upper bound. And that's not for any legal reason. That's just because we want more people to be able to engage uh, the goal is not just to sort of buy and immediately resell these things, but to allow communities to come together and, and buy them collectively. So there is a minimum of 10 shares and there is an upper bound of 10%, which would be 1,000 shares. Um, but there are four different assets. So hypothetically, if someone were really gung-ho, uh, they could buy 10% uh, of each of the four that I mentioned previously. One of the important things to understand about Freeport is that they've spent a good deal of time and money to secure SEC approval for their offering. This covers not only the four Warhols at launch, but up to $75 million worth of shares in fine art. Speaking with Colin, it becomes really clear that growing in lockstep with SEC compliance is a core aspect of the company's vision at every stage. This can be especially important in today's unclear regulatory environment with respect to crypto. I spoke with crypto lawyer Mark Rozak to get a better understanding of how Freeport secured its specific type of SEC approval and what that approval means. And so Regulation A allows companies to raise money from non-accredited people in a way that's sort of easier and cheaper than going uh, public and doing a full IPO. Anything as it's related to crypto and the SEC, they're going to scrutinize to a greater degree. The approach that Freeport took was sort of um, almost like a Web 2.5 approach in the sense like it, it's, it, it's, they're tokenizing the interests in an LLC, right? And so the SEC, that's something that the SEC can sort of wrap their head around. Hey, we're selling interest in this LLC, and therefore we understand how this operates. And really, yeah, there's this tokenized element that allows you to do these cool things. But it's, it, it's, it's something that they're familiar with, right? If you're talking about, you know, for example, just Ethereum in itself, 
Well, Ethereum isn't a tokenized anything, right? It's just this token that exists that people can use, but it doesn't have any legal rights like the rights uh, like an LLC membership interest would have, right? And so that was, I mean, I think there have been maybe a handful of sort of true crypto projects that have done a reggae, but it's been um, years since people have done it and it hasn't been uh, something that people have done regularly because of the cost associated with it. But again, here Freeport sort of took this approach of like Web 2.5 and, you know, sort of uh, used the traditional approach of offering membership interest in an LLC that are tokenized. And so what it does is it makes the, the, the legal rights of the token holder or the, the individual uh, of the, the member of the LLC more clear. And so it's something that they, they feel more comfortable with. As you can see, in Mark's view, the structure of having a unique LLC own each piece of art on offer was a key factor to securing approval. Keeping that in mind, I wanted to dig deeper on some of the distinctions between different types of crypto projects and potential trade-offs in seeking regulatory approval. A lot of crypto projects uh, you know, work off the concept that hey, maybe we're not a security because we have a DAO managing this thing. And, you know, basically for the last three or four years, a lot of projects have taken that approach. I, I think we're seeing sort of um, the SEC scrutinizing that, particularly as it relates to, you know, actions against uh, the former Coinbase product manager and the Wahi case, and then the most more recent action against Bittrex. They're challenging that concept, um, which is basically, I think, will push more crypto projects towards Reg A. But, uh, you know, if, if you can go and sort of launch this token and get it listed and seek liquidity and do that without having to go through the Reg A process, which has been slow. And if it's a pure crypto play without sort of an LLC sitting in the middle, then it's become it becomes difficult. Freeport was able to be lean and efficient at securing its Reg A approval in just under a year and at a cost of around $250,000. Other companies have not been so lucky. My understanding is they spent like a million and a half dollars on legal trying to push this thing through. And so they finally got it. But just from a cost of capital perspective, like you, you wanted to raise 50, you end up raising 20 and raising that 20 costs you a million and a half and 18 months. Yeah. <laughs> To comply with SEC requirements often means a sacrifice of decentralization upfront. But according to Colin, that's not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, executive decision-making may be essential to accomplishing the company's vision and growing to the point where it starts to make sense for more decentralized measures to take hold. We have managerial control uh, over, you know, what is being bought, when it's being sold, a lot of those other elements. Now, long-term, I am of the decentralization ethos, and I do appreciate when people are able to vote on what happens with sort of the thing that they're investing in. Um, but to start, especially given, you know, we had to get SEC approval to go the route that we've gone, we didn't want to overcomplicate things. And it can also get pretty messy when you're just founding a new company to allow too much decision-making to the people. Like even, even DAOs, that are wildly decentralized um, or tokens that, you know, uh, proclaim to be decentralized, 
they take, you know, two to four years before they get to that point of decentralization, right? Like they don't have everyone voting on everything at the time of origination because it makes it very difficult to operate as, as an organization. So we won't have voting to start, but it is uh, in my, my personal dream. Let's just say that. This raises a common tension for people who decide to build in crypto, which is on the one hand, balancing between the speed and operational efficiency of centralization, which will often require some KYC and regulatory oversight. And on the other hand, the ideological commitment to decentralization and building censorship resistant systems. Freeport sees an advantage to using its management role to make decisions about assets on the platform, at least for now. We are not going to be in a rush to sell these things, but we are also because we want people to be able to engage with the asset sort of virtually for, for quite some time. But we are also are going to keep the best interest of our of our users uh, in mind. Right. So uh, we'll likely set uh, a relatively stringent bar on what the return needs to look like before we we sell off the, the underlying asset itself. What we will be doing, that's a little different from what our competitors do, um, is we'll be sort of displaying the artwork in this virtual 3D gallery in such a way that you could come in as a buyer with a few million dollars and put in an offer on one of the assets. So if we think about, let's say, the Marilyn Monroe, um, if it's going up for you know $550,000, uh, that initial offering occurs. And then six months later, someone comes and says, you know what, I'll give you $800,000 for that Marilyn. We're likely going to sell it because we know that that is a significant short-term return for our investors. Um, but if it's something like, you know, an average of 5 or 6% ARR, and don't quote me on these, but I'm just giving some random examples, uh, and someone gives us that type of an offer, we likely won't accept that. Um, and we'll continue holding the art piece because we have a fundamental belief that art um, is an incredibly rare asset. It's an asset that does really, really well, especially in times like the ones um, we're in right now. And we'll likely do even better as AI continues to progress and sort of remove the need for human artists to exist um, or remove, remove the desire for folks to, I guess, get into that field, which means that the assets that do exist that are made by real humans that are handmade by like Andy Warhol as an example or Picasso um, we'll start to gain more meaning, right? And, and we'll have even more cultural significance because they'll harken back to a time when like real humans did real human things. So anyways, that's a long-winded way of saying um, we will only be choosing artwork that we think is highly valuable and that will increase in value over time. And we will keep the best interest of our investors in, in mind uh, at all points in time. Uh, we'll have a board as well um, of art advisors and art experts um, that will help us make those decisions. And we'll also be getting appraisals over time on the artwork itself to ensure that any offers we do end up accepting are well within the bounds of, again, what would be best for our investors. This is an interesting point to start considering where crypto and the Web3 ecosystem have an essential role to play in accomplishing Freeport's vision. One way of thinking about it is contributing a form of social value to growing the overall value of the underlying art beyond how it would be expected to increase over time. So imagine, for instance, if you held a token on Freeport um, and by holding that, by virtue of holding that token that you purchased on Freeport, you could get access to, as an example, the Playboy Mansion in Sandbox uh, that's going to be built right? Because there's a back room in the Playboy Mansion that has a specific piece of art in it. And you can only access that back room if you own the token on Freeport. 
Well, now you have two different elements that are adding value to the token. You have the underlying physical art asset, and then you have the experiential asset of being able to do things by virtue of holding that token in your wallet. Um, and then you can start to say things like, well, okay, what if you can customize your gallery on the Freeport platform and that gallery is going to be viewed by other friends and they'll be able to sort of vote on which pieces they like the most. Uh, and then your desire to have the piece that's most voted on as the favorite, let's say it's like the Maryland Warhol or just, you know, some Basquiat in the future. What does that do to the value of the token itself when social elements come into play? Because people are not just purchasing their expected future value of the artwork, but they're purchasing the expected future value of the social interactions that come with being an owner. Uh, and that's when it starts to get really, really interesting, right? Because you have this base of what the, the token is backed by, which is the physical artwork, but then you have this sort of unlimited, you know, uh, potential future utility. And again, a lot of this stuff is going to come over time, right? Like there, we, we don't have, um, you know, we don't have anything signed with Playboy to, to bring your tokens and go do this in the mansion currently. I'm just using this as kind of like a futuristic example, but you can start to think about um, what other benefits ownership brings to you as a token holder. And it's not just the art investment. And I think that's kind of the magic of, of blockchain is that you can then have these interoperable experiences that aggregate value on top of each other. Um, and that's where it starts to get really interesting for our investors. It starts to get really interesting for us because we can generate those different experiences. Um, and that's in the digital realm. There's also the physical realm, right? So at the start, we'll be storing these assets uh, somewhere very safe, temperature controlled, uh, ensuring that you know, they're all properly accounted for uh, and insured. But long term, you can imagine there being spaces like museums. But instead of going to the museum that I mentioned before, where you feel like you're completely uh, detached, where you feel like you're in a different phase of existence from the actual artwork itself, you go to the museum and you actually own a piece of some of the things that are in that gallery, right? And you can bring your friends to the museum and you collectively can talk about which ones you own in the physical world. Um, so that's something that's on the roadmap. It's something that, again, we're not going to have it launched because we have to be focused on the core value proposition for our users first, which is primarily digital, uh, although it's backed by these physical assets. Um, but then we can give access to those types of museums to, to the people that have invested um, and create, again, something that is sort of a net new benefit for the token holders on top of just what the underlying asset is. Um, so these are the kind of things that we have, again, planned out for our roadmap. I want to reiterate that, you know, they're not there immediately at launch, but it's, it's important to think about what the vision uh, is going to be. And that's where all of our heads are at, at Freeport. From here, let's dive further into the world of DeFi. The value that is being traded as between the powerful tools of DeFi today is largely crypto native and therefore abstract. Now, abstract concepts can definitely carry value, especially when it comes to NFT art and proliferating memes. Shout out Punk6529. But that sphere is limited in the present day and does not include the value of real world assets like houses, cars, real estate, and of course, physical art. So what does it begin to look like for DeFi when we are able to represent and leverage the value of these real world assets on chain? I don't know if you've ever seen, you know, a slime mold that's dropped into a Petri dish and there are different like little nuggets of food in the Petri dish and the slime mold tries to find the most efficient 
path between the sort of uh, wh- whatever the food is that, that it's consuming at that point in time. There's some corollary to how cities exist uh, in countries as well and sort of like how the roads go up between cities. But anyways, so, so you've got, so you've got this, this idea wherein, um, you know, we have these nodes that exist just like slime mold in a Petri dish, which are places like Uniswap or Aave or Compound or, or other um, sort of structures that allow for the ingestion of value. Um, and what we did is we just dropped a ton of value into the DeFi ecosystem so that people could play around in a sandbox effectively, right? So the value that was dropped in was almost all just abstractions built upon different abstractions. And like this one was fun. There's a bunch of yield to be had over here and you can use this other thing as collateral over here and you can have wrapped states, whatever else over here. And it's their series of abstractions that let builders play really aggressively and really quickly in the DeFi ecosystem, which is fantastic for building those structures and seeing how value coming in like will function and allowing you to grow out the channels and sort of like the connections between all those, those DeFi protocols. But then what ended up happening was because all the value that was fed into them was just kind of fluff. It was just not based upon anything. It was very easy for that value to just flee. Right. So there was nothing going into that ecosystem that had long-term resilient value like real world assets do currently, right? So that's one of the reasons why when we bring something like fine art into onto blockchain or we bring, you know, some people are bringing real estate onto blockchain or, or other assets that are hard assets, it reinforces blockchain and it reinforces the stability and allows the value that's flowing through those structures that we created, right? Those slime mold structures. Um, it allows them to actually function properly and continuously, and that makes humans more efficient overall. When, when our value all exists on chain and we're able to utilize the structures that have been built, but where all the value has kind of fled because it turns out it was just a bunch of series of abstractions for a while. Now it can be based upon real things. Uh, and that is what is going to give us permanence, I think, with uh, with DeFi tools. That's not to say that those abstract things aren't awesome and like super, super valuable over time. Uh, uh, but it means that it's time for us to, to look at different ways at reinforcing the entire system and allowing the system to grow more continuously and effectively over time and to not just have kind of, you know, the rug pulled <laughs> too frequently. It's important to understand here that the tools of the DeFi ecosystem allow people to get more utility out of the value of their assets if the value of those assets can be represented on chain. One prime example is DeFi lending. So currently with the real world loan process, it's very inefficient and ripe for disruption. In order to go into a bank and get an equity backed loan, it usually requires weeks of paperwork where a team evaluates your assets based on documents and there is a lot of back and forth. By contrast, DeFi tools can verify your assets and collateralize them using smart contracts in exchange for money that is delivered immediately to your crypto wallet via stablecoin. The whole process is trustless and there are no files to be notarized or mailed, no in-person meetings, and no discretionary decisions that are made by random bankers. You stake your asset, which is secured in a form of cryptographic escrow that protects the counterparty against downside risk, and you receive a loan. Magic. Value that's been brought on chain has this capability of 
um, allowing for access to the underlying liquidity that most value that we see in the real world does not because it's so interoperable. It's so easy to just kind of stake a token and kind of uh, take a loan out against it. Um, so we had planned for that. And in the um, SEC submission of our offering circular, we actually clarified that we intended to lend to our members. Um, and that ended up being fine with the SEC. Uh, we did not get any comments on that section, surprisingly. Um, so what that means is at some point in the future, uh, we are going to allow for the staking of our tokens uh, and the lending of ideally USDC out to folks who have staked those tokens. Again, this won't be live right at launch, um, but as soon as we find the right partner uh, to allow for this and we ensure that we're doing everything properly and above board because that's critical for us uh, at Freeport, then we will absolutely be allowing for that feature. So uh, much more to come there. We do think it's critically important um, and we're excited about it, frankly. Okay, so Colin has previewed Freeport's plans for DeFi lending, but I wanted to get a more comprehensive sense of how Freeport differs from Masterworks, which is the company's predominant legacy competitor in the space of fractionalizing and selling shares of fine art. What stands out for me is that this is about much more than a return on investment, but creating a new type of experience around owning art, and perhaps rather ambitiously, around the fact of ownership itself. Masterworks, they got a few things right, for sure, right? They know that art is going to be uh, an incredible asset class to be in for the long term. They're planning for the long term. They're holding their assets for the long term. Um, that's well done. They're fractionalizing, which is useful because they can increase the sort of the, the underlying demand by virtue of having more people able to afford the artwork. Um, but they also tend to have very high minimums. They may have recently reduced these, but you know, back when I was looking at them, it was something like $15,000 to get in. We have a much lower uh, barrier to entry, right? We're looking at something like 180 bucks for the, the James Dean in our first offering because we're fractionalizing these things, um, you know, 10,000 10, ways. Um, so it's a lower barrier to entry. We're planning for the future, right? So that the assets that are tokenized on the Freeport platform can engage with everything that, that Web3 has to offer rather than just being completely off chain and saying, hey, you have to come to our website Everything is going to be siloed around our website and exist only here. Um, so that means that when we talk about things like lending that you just mentioned, well, we can just plug into smart contracts at some point in time and we can come up with the best possible lending solution by virtue of all the different um, elements that are on offer there on chain. And we can just drop USDC into people's wallets, right, that they can then just go instantly use. And smart contracts will allow for all of that. Masterworks will, will never be able to do that until they move their assets on chain. Um, as one example. Another example is we care about the engagement with the art. So I think the, the relevant stat here is that only 5% of people purchase art purely as an investment and something like 13% um, purchase art purely for aesthetics because they want to enjoy it. Uh, and the other, oh man, what is that? 82% uh, purchase it for both reasons. It's because they enjoy the artwork and they want to sort of engage with it as a collector, but they also know in the back of their minds, well, this may this may accrue value over time, and I may have you know, a positive, profitable experience. Um, so our significant differentiator is that we care about both of those things, the collecting element as well as the investing element, um, which we believe is going to be much, much more appealing to a broad swath of people who want to get engaged in art. So that's why we have things like 
uh, the virtual gallery. That's why we have elements like uh, showing people how many views or likes they have on their artwork or their gallery. It's why we're going to have comments in the gallery so that people can engage with other humans and have a collector's experience. So we believe in this sort of fundamental underlying aspect of democratized, fractionalized ownership in the, in the same way as that. But then they kind of stop there. It's just the financial exposure. And we want to build an entire world on top of that. Um, so Freeport is meant to be a much larger view of what it means to fundamentally change the idea of ownership uh, and not to just limit it to sort of charts and graphs and, you know, uh, candlesticks and, and things that most people uh, don't really know how to read who, who don't have a financial background. There are voices that have been skeptical of the ability to effectively bring real-world assets on chain, given the potential logistical and regulatory hurdles. Colin shares some conceptual thoughts as to why these concerns are overstated and the importance of persisting, nonetheless, given the value of what's at stake. As soon as you abstract the value one step away from the physical thing, then it lives in a realm of you know, humans just kind of making predictions around it. It's, it's no longer tethered to that physical thing. And we do that all the time with different forms of value. So you can take that value that's been abstracted away from the physical thing and you can put it on chain. The only inherently difficult thing to do logistically is to store the physical asset. But once the asset is stored and it's safe and it's secure, then all you have is the abstract value that's floating around and you can do a lot of things with that abstract value. We think that it should live on chain because abstract value that's put on chain can do more with other value that's been put on chain, can interact with the DeFi protocols, uh, at least when regulation allows, uh, in a way that allows us to build new things on top of that abstract value. So I think it's pretty short-sighted to say that you can't bring physical assets on chain because really, as soon as you have the thing stored, it's just like any other physical object that we've already abstracted the value away from. Um, I do agree that regulation could be lessened <laughs> on this front, uh, and that might make life easier. But at the end of the day, we need to bring as much value as we possibly can onto the blockchain in order for humans to be as efficient as we possibly can be. And that will entail bringing real-world assets generally and physical assets as well, bringing their value onto blockchain. And it's not that hard. It's a little bit hard, but people just need to get past this sort of classical paradigm of disconnecting those two things and realize that we have already disconnected the physical world and the abstract world in many ways in our classic, you know, web two and, and web zero lives. Speaking about art in terms of assets raises the question of, well, other assets. How does Freeport plan to expand in the future beyond Warhol and friends to bring the universe of legacy value on chain? Anything that has a high enough value can hypothetically be brought on chain and tokenized. Now, that doesn't mean that all of it should be um, virtualized or visualized. So if you think about, I mean, the metaverse is not a sexy word at the moment, but if you think about different um, iterations of the metaverse that will be more successful in the future, whether that be a few years or, or whether that be 10 years, um, we're going to want to have things of value exist there that people can engage with relatively easily. So art is one of those things where like, if you have a house in a virtual world, you can hang that art up in that house and own that art in the real life. And that's in the real world, excuse me. And that's exciting with real estate. You can imagine, you know, displaying the properties and sort of engaging with those properties in a virtual sense and knowing that you're an actual owner of a physical property as well. And that gets really, really interesting. 
Um, so we're going to, and you know, cars, the, the same thing goes for cars. Uh, in, in my dream world, uh, we would take some part in, this is in the long, long future, but transferring, you know, even the stock market on chain. Um, I'm sure that there are plenty of other people thinking about that. I know, you know, NASDAQ and the New York Stock Exchange, I'm sure are having some discussions about how they can take advantage of, of the blockchain world. But those are real world assets that, while not physical, should still certainly be brought on chain. But from our perspective, it's what will what will people be able to have that sense of ownership of in the back of their head, head whether it be by virtue of being um, visual or sort of by virtue of being experiential. Um, those are the first things that we want to bring on chain, right? Because we want people to both be able to experience it as well as have the financial exposure to it. And that's where we think the magic um, is going to happen. And there you have it. That's all for today's episode. Thank you so much to Colin, Mark, and Jane for contributing their time and incredible thoughts to this indivisible production. Be sure to head to freeport.app to check out their launch on May 10th and get yourself a piece of a Warhol. I hope you stay well out there and until next time.